0: The tumultuous end to America's longest war, immortalized in these chaotic scenes. Thousands of Afghans stormed the Kabul airport in a desperate attempt to flee the country. From Radio Free Europe, I'm Reid Standish, and this is Talking China in Eurasia. On today's episode, we're revisiting the hot and cold relationship between China and the Taliban. Helicopters are filling the sky around me, Apaches, Chinooks. We knew that the Taliban were very near, but they're now in town. Only hours after Taliban forces swept into Kabul in August 2021 and ousted the Afghan government, Beijing said it was ready to step in and help the country get back on its feet. China had been courting the Taliban even before the United States' chaotic withdrawal. Some Central Asia analysts believe China was a factor in the speed of the Taliban takeover. But what does China actually want from Afghanistan? The Taliban potentially has access to $1 to $3 trillion
1: worth of critical mineral endowments.
0: In the eyes of some, Beijing is only after one thing, the country's massive mineral wealth.
1: The big play is, you know, can they develop this resource?
0: For others, it's all about China's own security. China is increasingly concerned about the problems related to terrorism and extremism.
1: Security is what's driving China's relationship with the Taliban and what they're now calling friendly relations.
0: So what does this all mean for Afghanistan? Later in the show, I'll break down the complex history between these two countries with Andrew Small. He's a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund in Berlin. But first, after more than two years of Taliban rule, I want to get a sense of how things are going between China and Afghanistan on the ground. My first guest, Ali Latifi, is the Asia editor for The New Humanitarian, and he joins me from Kabul. Ali, uh, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here. Um, you're based in Afghanistan. When you look around Kabul today, you travel around the country, how noticeable is China's presence in the country?
1: It's not I wouldn't say it's like massive, but it's definitely noticeable in that you see Chinese people walking around armed guards with them, you see them in businesses, you see buildings with Chinese letters on it, and it's something that you definitely. Notice a month or so ago, uh, one of my cousins, he was talking about one, one of the villages part of my family comes from, and there's a lot of like uh, sand there. He saw Chinese, you would assume investors or businessmen there, uh, just looking around and pointing at things, probably trying to buy some of the sand or some kind of land deal there.
0: Ali, I mean, I'm always very curious for this question. I mean, why <laughs> do you think China is so important to the Taliban and we're seeing things start to change now.
1: I think part of it has to do with the fact that, and and this was something that I think even the Republic towards the end of the occupation was trying to move towards, especially after Biden announced his withdrawal, uh, is this idea that we need to get closer to the region and to regional powers. So that would be places like China, like uh, Russia, Iran, Turkey, Pakistan. Um, And so I think for the Taliban and for the Islamic Emirate, uh, their government, it's sort of a way to have someone that has power, that has wealth, that has influence.
2: China became the first major nation to flag support for the Taliban, saying it was ready for friendly relations. We've
1: seen that in certain international meetings in the UN and other sorts of events, uh, China has been one of those countries uh, that has try to get the international community to engage with and work with uh, the Islamic Emirate to to say that, you know, we have to start approaching them. We have to start figuring out how, how to work with them and sort of going to bat for them.
0: What does what that, you know, working together look like? I mean, uh, I think we're going to get into a few things, but I mean, I, obviously a big part of it is mm-hmm. the, the economic side of it. So, you know, we're seeing perhaps more Chinese capital start to trickle into the country now, but what kind of industries are you, do we see Chinese investments start to go into?
1: It almost always seems to be extractive industries. Uh, every time you hear of some kind of a new Chinese contract, um, and it's it's similar with the Turks and with, with a lot of other countries, uh, but especially with the Chinese, it has something to do with minerals, minerals. Um, I think even like gas and petroleum, if I remember correctly, uh, but definitely something extractive, uh, which is interesting because in the past the Chinese government uh, did have the contract and they still have the contract for Missine Nak, which is considered the, the second largest copper mine in the world. This barren, isolated place in eastern Afghanistan is believed to hold the second largest copper ore deposits in the world worth at least $50 billion.
0: China in
2: 2007 had signed a 30-year lease to extract copper ore from this area. And they had that, uh, during the republic, uh, as far back as the, the,
1: the rule of President Ahmed Karzai, but if you look at it, they actually put in very little work and effort into that site. You know, there was a lot of, uh, provisions that they would have to provide certain services, that they would have to build certain kinds of infrastructure to, easily transport whatever would be excavated, and there was no real proof that any kind of large um, extraction took part, and there definitely wasn't other kinds of infrastructure, even certain rail things that, that, that the government was asking for that China actually put into place. So it, it led to a lot of questions of why did they spend all this money if they didn't really end up doing anything with the mine?
0: Right. Well, I mean, you, you brought up mining and resources. You know, this, as mm-hmm. you said, you know, this is something that China's had an interest in, you know, before the, the Taliban returned to power. Are deals like this still going on now that the Taliban has come to power? Um, you know, I'm curious, what kind of agreements are you seeing in the last two years?
1: All kind, they keep announcing these kinds of agreements with China, with Turkey, with Russia, with Iran, with Pakistan, with all of these countries that I said earlier uh, in the region, and all of them have something to do with extractive industries. And obviously with with the sanctions, with the aid cuts, with the banking restrictions uh, that that led to this current economic decline on August 31st, which was the anniversary of the U.S. withdrawal, the end of the occupation, um, the government was touting very heavily that they signed, I think it was like six or seven contracts uh, with several different countries, including China, uh, that had to do with mineral resources.
0: Right. I mean, you you mentioned that there wasn't much movement on Nak. I mean, are mm-hmm. where do these deals that you're talking about that are getting signed under the Taliban stand? I mean, are there signs now that these these new ones for Afghan resources are actually being limited, or implemented, sorry?
1: Um not as far as I know. I mean, as far as I see, it's always just this, you know, this is something similar to what happened during the Republic, these kinds of contracts, these kinds of agreements would get announced, but you wouldn't actually ever know um, how they came to fruition, you know, or, or to what stage they got to, you just knew that they were signed. And like, actual physical change? No, not yet. There have been developments in terms of Certain mining infrastructure, in terms of like certain railways and things like that, but that didn't necessarily have to do with Chinese agreements. A lot of that had to do with the Islamic Emirate government itself and uh, partnerships with the Central Asian neighbors, more so than China itself.
0: Right. Well, I mean, Ali, it sounds to me like you're 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 pulling on this major theme, which is. I think, a real lack of transparency, both under the previous government and that's continued here under the Taliban. I mean, can you can you tell me a bit more about that?
1: I mean, that that's really all it is, is that we hear, you know, it, it's not really a, a rare news item to hear that another contract has been signed, that there has been some other kind of investment. But I think the issue is because a lot of things aren't really consumer facing. Mm-hmm. So to the average person it's it's really hard to tell, right? Um and also obviously like mining and extractive industries, they're such big endeavors and operations mm-hmm. that it may take a while to I don't to actually see like the machinery and whatever else, you know, like the telltale signs of those things. Uh, but I think also because these are such theoretically big, you know, projects that as I said, aren't, you know, it's not stores being open, it's not restaurants Mm -hmm. being open, it's not roads being paved, it's it's mining infrastructure, you know, so it's very hard for the average person to see those things, I would imagine.
0: Right, well, I mean, something that, I mean, I've heard this in in my own reporting, I mean, that's that Mm -hmm. China has big concerns about how you can do development in Afghanistan, and a lot of that comes back to the security situation on the ground. I mean tell me about where things stand currently you know what's the security situation in the country under the Taliban at the moment and then how does that concern Chinese nationals
1: I mean overall the security situation is much better obviously the reason is because the Taliban was one of the groups that was creating this insecurity so when you take them out of the equation obviously security gets better right so it is much better in that sense mm-hmm. uh there is still the presence of the so-called Islamic State within the country, but their attacks have gotten much less brazen, much less common. Uh, luckily, you know there hasn't been a real large scale attack claimed by that group in, in, in several months now, not to jinx it. But one of the last uh, major attacks that they carried out was against Chinese nationals, like basically right down the road from where I live. Uh, in a building that was known to house uh, Chinese nationals. And when you look at some of the, you know, over the last year, some of the really big attacks claimed by the so-called Islamic State Forces, they targeted the Russians, the Pakistanis, and the Chinese, which are three of the biggest... Uh, perceived allies of the islamic emirate government and obviously you know the islamic emirate the islamic uh, state is 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 a huge rival to the taliban and their islamic emirate so they want to create danger for anybody that they consider to be close to loyal or beneficial to the islamic emirate government and obviously china is one of those countries
0: okay that's interesting well i mean when we take all of this and we start to add it up What does that tell us about where things stand today between China and the Taliban in Afghanistan?
1: I think it's kind of ambiguous. I think China wants to be involved in Afghanistan, but it doesn't necessarily know exactly how. Because if you compare China's presence in Afghanistan to even Pakistan or different parts of the African continent, you know, recently you've been seeing so many things online praising, which is weird because they don't have such a great reputation for their work here, but praising China's work in the African continent in terms of infrastructure and things like, I mean, I remember even Akon, the singer, made a a video about it
0: online. You've always said that China has done more for Africa than any other country.
1: I mean, it's true. That's not not something anybody can argue with. I mean, you know, they came, they laid down infrastructure. They actually did something that The European countries have been around for 400 years and did nothing. China just started putting interest in Africa. Now you have roads, roundabouts. Like, they're actually putting structure down. And so you would think that now that the Islamic Emirate is back in power and that they don't have to really sort of contend with Washington's presence here, that they would be much more prevalent and, and visible and active. They're definitely engaged, but it's not anywhere near the extent of what you hear about other countries uh in the region and you know in other continents i think nassainak is the perfect example like we i still have no idea what they wanted with that mind because they never really started doing any real extraction or development or any kind of thing there they just bought it spent a lot of money and got a 30-year contract and i think now with this government it's sort of the same thing like They sign agreements, they have a diplomatic presence, they they try and uh, go to bat for uh, the Islamic Emirate whenever they can. But I don't know, It's, it's not at all what we had imagined.
0: For some answers about what exactly is behind this strategic ambiguity from China, I wanted to turn to Andrew Small to get a better understanding of the history that informs this region and how it has shaped things for Beijing over the years. Andrew studies China for the German Marshall Fund, and he's been following Beijing's role in Afghanistan and Pakistan for years. Andrew, we've already taken a look at how things have changed since the Taliban returned to power. But when you look at it on paper, a religious fundamentalist group and a communist government, they don't seem like a natural fit to be working together. So why don't you tell us about what brought about those first interactions between Beijing and the Taliban and what they were like?
2: Sure. So thanks for the chance to join you on this. Um, Exactly how you characterize it is still, I think, how Beijing sees it. They're not and have never really been entirely comfortable with this relationship. They have found a way to work with each other on various areas, but this is a low trust and and very suspicious relationship. And it has been since those very early days because the relationship was really initiated out of concerns that China had uh, about Afghanistan under the Taliban during its first period of of rule being used as a base for what uh, has been dubbed ETIM, some of the Uyghur militant groups that were operating at that time relatively freely as many other groups were in Afghanistan. Now for China, because of the relationship between Pakistan and, and the Taliban, the Pakistanis had long been urging the Chinese government to go and develop relations and ties with, with the Taliban um, and that they could help fix the problems that they have more directly.
0: With Chinese investments in transportation routes through Pakistan, the two countries share a need for stability.
2: First, that Afghan soil should not be used against China. It shares a 50 miles long border with Afghanistan. So back in the very early days, China sent its intelligence agents um, basically to stand out whether there was the possibility of a a deal that could be struck uh, over the Uyghur question, um, which was the main focus on on China's part. Uh, And from their side, I mean, they. They had seen on, on the Taliban and some hope that China could be helpful on sanctions, on international recognition, um, and just on putting some money into the economy and, and some investment into the economy. And they reached a kind of agreement that has stuck pretty much to this day. But again, back to the very way you framed the question, this, this was difficult then. Um, the early Taliban delegations to, to Beijing, if you talk to some of the Chinese who were involved in, in, in the meetings and things, the Taliban would come along sit in their hotel rooms bring their own bread wouldn't join the meals there was just this sense of cultural religious ideological gap and this has this has not gone away
0: right well let's unpack some of what you just touched on then First of all, you mentioned ETIM, which stands for the Eastern Turkestan Islamic Movement. It's a very politicized term, and there's been lots of debate among analysts and governments over the years over how serious of a threat this militant group actually poses to China. East Turkestan, of course, is the term that refers to the area of northwest China that makes up Xinjiang province today, which is home to the Uyghurs. And this name has really been hardwired into these Uyghur nationalist and independence movements over the years. These movements, of course, they've largely been peaceful, but there have been some small militant groups over the years that have formed, and there have been some small episodes of violence inside Xinjiang. With all of that in mind, Andrew, how does it relate to Beijing's wider efforts to maintain what they see as stability inside Xinjiang? And how much of a threat does a group like ETIM or its offshoots actually pose from outside China?
2: So this is immensely politically loaded territory because It's been very difficult to separate out the genuine fears that uh, Chinese officials, Chinese government and others have from certain kinds of militant activity from all the other things that China wraps into terrorism, separatism, uh, in some cases, essentially religiosity uh, and and everything that's gone on um, in terms of the um, extremely brutal crackdowns that have taken place in Xinjiang that have been justified through this framework. Mm
0: First, the Uyghurs, who torched buses as terrified passengers ran off, followed by their community's women, rising up to protest the arbitrary nighttime arrests of their sons and husbands. But police, in their attempt to track down rioters, rounded men up in the thousands.
2: Since 2017, up to a million Uyghurs have been placed in what some call concentration camps, and the Chinese government calls vocational
1: education centers. Seekers and other Muslim minorities have been detained for ideological transformation and were kept isolated from the outside world.
2: But th- there has been also a real issue that China has, has faced at different junctures. I think you basically, you have to go back to the early 90s and lots of the concerns that China has had about Xinjiang in the aftermath of the fall of the Soviet Union were about essentially a separate East Turkestan and the kind of movements that we'd seen in Central Asian states uh, being replicated in Xinjiang. But this also did fuse with kind of growing religiosity across across the region. And in the 90s, as opposed to the 80s, which was a kind of more conciliatory period, you had pretty vicious crackdowns, the strike hard campaign. This displaced a lot of Uyghurs. Many of those Uyghurs then found their way into Afghanistan and some of them found their way into some of the militant networks and militant groups that were operating there. Uh, back in the late nineties, uh, ETIM was kind of a barely existing entity and it became less of an existing entity um, after the, the US invasion of Afghanistan, which displaced them into Pakistan and, and meant we were dealing with an extremely uh, small number of people. But I mean, when it comes to the Afghanistan dimension of this. China's pretty much a locked down border with Afghanistan. So we're never mostly talking about cross-border uh, issues directly. The issues that China has had um, in terms of kind of movements of people or weapons or anything have tended to be through Tajikistan um, uh, or at certain junctures through through Pakistan. The series of terrorist attacks that you saw in China in the early period of, China's, of, of Xi Jinping's tenure as party secretary and, and, and leader in Xinjiang um, and ultimately in other bits of of China, most of these have not had a cross-border dimension. Most of these have been a reflection of internal disaffection um, in in, in Xinjiang, but the Chinese government's approach has been that you need to squeeze this out no matter how tiny and how lacking in capabilities and how essentially non-connected they are to Xinjiang proper, uh, these groups actually are.
0: Okay, well, I I think in order to really seem to grasp a lot of what you said there, I mean, I think it really comes down to the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks, which then leads to the U.S.-led invasion, which then topples the Taliban. And then we see this global war on terror get launched uh, out of Washington. What does Beijing's relationship then become with the Western-backed Afghan government over those following years?
2: So... In the period after 2001, this was the point in which you really start to get China tying its narrative about terrorism in Xinjiang to the global war on terror. This is the point in which you get all of these dossiers produced by the Chinese government about ETIM activities and basically saying we're in a shared struggle with the rest of the world against uh, Islamist militancy. Uh, And this was probably the juncture at which there was the least case to say that ETIM uh, even really existed. Um, on, on China's part, I mean, in terms of the issues in Xinjiang, the early to mid two thousands were actually a relatively benign uh, period in terms of uh, security situation um, in inside Xinjiang. It's only after two thousand and nine that you you really get the escalation and 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 the issues uh, taking place. Um, but this was also a period of time in which China was then able to to a certain extent co-opt other countries. This is when you start getting ETIM designated at the UN, and the US is is also willing to um, designate the group uh, at the time as well. So they're able to build some sort of international legitimacy um, for the sorts of crackdowns in Xinjiang that we'd seen before, but during a period where, frankly, there was then less need on the part of the Chinese government uh, to, to do that, and where the international dimension had become easier just because the remnants of the group were in such a weak state. We're talking about tens of people at this stage with no capacity to conduct uh, even then uh, propaganda activities, let alone um, actual militant activities. Um, So this only really changes after the late 2000s, and then you get a sort of resurgence Uh, in in, in different ways of ETIM as the Turkestan Islamic Party after 2008, 2009 in particular, and a much more internationalised dimension that then becomes tied up with Syria. The Turkish government helps to set them up in parts of Syria um, and they become a group that actually starts to have some credibility as well in the international militant movement, which they did not before, but their operations in, in Syria are then taking place on a reasonably serious scale." This video purports to show ethnic Uyghurs fighting for Islamic State. They threaten to return home to China and shed what they call rivers of blood. Analysts say the propaganda is part of IS attempts to fight back in the face
0: of heavy losses in Iraq and Syria. Right, I mean, I guess that's a lot of experience to get, you know, sort of battle-hardened, as you say like gaining legitimacy on the on the battlefield in Syria. So I mean how do we go from there then to where things stand today Andrew with the the Taliban coming back into power. We did this here at Radio for Europe, you know, the Taliban had relocated some weaker militants from the border regions closer to China back to Kabul. Um, ha- is there a growing progress here is you know, does China see a greater threat at the moment? How, how have things just evolved from where we're talking about? We have Syria, we have the advent of ISIS, we have things growing to all the way where we are today.
2: The big concern for for China was exactly as you kind of framed it in the question that you would get battle hardened fighters returning from Syria, basing themselves in Afghanistan, and and that this would then become the kind of new base of operations. It, it was where the leadership was 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 based of, of TIP anyway, and and TIP has always been Taliban loyal. Um, have fought in battles with the Taliban. So all of this has meant that there's a lot of anxiety on the Chinese side um, about what this could mean in terms of Afghanistan as a future base of, of operations. So this has been the focus for them in their diplomacy with the Taliban. And of course, the question has then been, What forms of limitation can Beijing persuade the Taliban um, to impose on on this group? They know, although they're not happy about it, that they're not going to hand these um, people over. Uh, They know they're not even necessarily going to displace them from the country. They know they're not going to arrest or kill them. So the limiting that they have kind of at least expected of the Taliban is the old deal that they will not be able to conduct operations. They will not cause the Taliban themselves headaches by doing so. Uh, but um, as we know, they're kind of still present in, in, in Afghanistan, uh, even if, you know, again, even their propaganda activities do seem to have been restricted. This is not the ideal version of things from China's perspective, uh, but that's about as much as I, I think they understand they can really expect. And in return, I think there is an understanding as well that they at least have to dangle some kind of resources, financing, cooperation, investment to the Taliban. And to a limited extent, China has been willing to do this. But the problem that they've had is the kind of more pragmatic parts of the Taliban that they had hoped would be running the show have not been the parts that are running the show, and they have not been willing to jump through the sorts of hoops that would have led to international recognition. So from China's perspective, they haven't seen that. They're still concerned about how the situation there will evolve. They were long concerned about what the situation would look like after the US withdrawal. They know the security situation is much better. We're seeing people going in. Uh, you know, They can get to INAC copper mine and some of their um, older investments and and, and things that they had with the previous government. But I think that the concern for them is how long is this going to last? And again, do they have Mm -hmm. a government they can really deal with?
0: Right, well, and I also mentioned when you start to look at these things, you know, from the Taliban's perspective, obviously there's a need for financing. You're isolated from the world. A lot of your financings have been cut off by the United States and the West. China is the main ticket for that. But at the same time, like you said, you know, a lot of these people that say, these these militants that Beijing wants to perhaps get their hands on, there's old loyalties there at play. And then I also imagine, you know, for, again, uh, you know, a group that is, at the end of the day, a religious group, there's probably going to be some qualms there about dealing with a government like China, especially given the crackdown that we've seen since 2017 inside Xinjiang. The the advent of the camp system, which is more than one million Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities in China passed through um, a re-education camp system. We've seen all sorts of violations, human rights abuses. Some Western governments have gone as far as to say that it's genocide. So, I mean, that's got to create a lot of hiccups and problems that are just difficult to bridge, I'd imagine, right?
2: Yes, um, but... If, if you go back to the way some of these militant groups have, have viewed China in, in the past, um, if you even go back and look at some of bin Laden's kind of comments on China and, and on, on, on Xinjiang, this is a world of conspiracy theories. Um, it's... It's a world of the U.S. and the CIA um, are conducting propaganda operations. Th- these things aren't really happening. There's a lot of kind of suspicion of of, of this entire uh, agenda, and so it's not. It, it should be a pretty clear case where you would have uh, the Taliban, given its its position, you know, take at least internally, a a clearer stance on these issues. It knows it's a radioactive issue. They duck it. Of course, it's another part of feeding into a sense that this is a government that has a hostile, deeply hostile relationship to Islam. I mean, there's no question. There's a strong religious dimension to this in terms of what China has been doing, but it hasn't precluded conducting pragmatic agreements with even movements like uh, the Taliban, um, but it does mean that, you know, in different ways, they are ideological opponents. Um, and there are ways of kind of uh, sort of finding one's way around it and coming up with stories about how this is all about the Americans trying to create splits. But it, it means on the two sides, there are just some real limits to the the trust that the two sides invest in each other. It's not just the practical security arrangements. It's the ideological inspiration that having a movement like the Taliban in power and succeeding to a certain extent in in power um, will mean for militancy across the entire region. And even if it doesn't translate into Xinjiang itself, it does and has been translating into a deteriorating security situation for China in other parts of the neighborhood, especially in, in, in Pakistan, where it has a much bigger and has Always had a much bigger set of investments than they ever had in Afghanistan.
0: China has more than $50 billion worth of investments in the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Infrastructure like roads and power plants, things like that. So it seems like we haven't seen much cooperation between both sides. When we're talking about security, we've been discussing the limits. But what is actually happening on the ground right now? You know, we spoke earlier about China's growing interest in Afghan resources, which is leading to lots of deals. But they aren't actually being implemented yet, in large part because of the security risks inside the country. So where are things headed for Beijing and the Taliban? And is China well placed to get what it wants in Afghanistan?
2: So The situation is, on the one hand, for them better than they had expected. On the other hand, uh, on another dimension, worse. It's better in that the country's not in in civil war, that you didn't have a huge outflow of refugees, that you haven't had a kind of massive destabilization. And there were lots of concerns on, on, on the Chinese side about what that would all look like. It's worse in that because the Taliban has been able to achieve... Uh, power purely by military means, and has been uh, essentially been non-conciliatory on most dimensions of its international position, and taken a whole series of steps that they knew would be alienating, but they've still been able to survive and hold things together. It's made them less willing to um, compromise, as far as China is, is would, would would see it, um, than might have been the case. Uh, the there is. And it has always been an interest in Afghan natural resources. Uh, but China is very good at kind of stringing this along. They did this with INAC for a long time, the the big copper deal that they had signed with the, the previous government. Um, they know quite well how to... Uh, make it seem as if there's action, give themselves options. But if they're concerned about political and security risk, come up with reasons why things don't really translate on the scale that you would expect. So they've gone back to some of the old deals. They've gone back to INAC. They've moved ahead with some of the old oil deals in the north. And maybe there are some limited small-scale investments that they that they can make. Um, and you know, trade has become easier in some respects um, for them under the Taliban. There, there are things they can do, but what they don't want to do is have the kind of exposure um, that will store up serious headaches for them down the line. And you have to understand, China sees Afghanistan as a potential trap. They don't want to fall into the same mistakes that they see others having made.
0: China has used the situation in Afghanistan to criticize the U.S. We've seen the U.S. military leave an awful mess of unrest, division, families ruined and orphaned.
2: And those mistakes, they don't just see as security questions. They see much deeper economic and uh, kind of political involvement as part of the trap. You, You fall into it during periods of calm. Then things turn and people turn on you and you find yourself the target. And China doesn't want to be the target. And so I think they will continue to keep that approach that is don't fall into the trap keep doing risk mitigation, but do enough to sustain the relationship and have the Taliban be as compliant as they're willing to be with all its limitations and when it comes to dealing with weaker groups inside the country.
0: Andrew, it's been so great to have you shed some light on this today. Thanks a lot for joining.
2: Thank you, thanks for having me on.
0: All right, that's all for this episode. I'm your host, Reid Standish. Katie Toth is our producer. Thanks to editors Carla Padrette, Kathleen Moore and Pete Bongartner and to Radio Free Europe's journalists around the world that make podcasts like this possible. Studio Direction was done by Stuart Greer, Kaisa Alaskar, and Giovanna alves Faria. And if you like this podcast, please share it and subscribe to Apple, Spotify, or wherever else you like to listen. Finally, if you haven't already, subscribe to the China Eurasia newsletter, which goes out every other Wednesday. Thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.